During this time of year, South by Southwest brings together innovators, changemakers, and leaders to Texas from all over the world. To celebrate this month, we will revisit episodes from The Index, a podcast collaboration between Texas Monthly and Rice Business at the 2019 South by Southwest Festival. The following is one of those episodes. If you'd like to hear the entire series, a link is in the show notes. Enjoy! Pop quiz. What's better, low prices or high prices? If you said, well, depends on who's asking, or the price of what, points for you. Because, as Professor Utpal Dalakia tells us, price is a complex thing that only pretends to be simple. Professor Dalakia studies psychology in both its pure and its applied form, which is to say, marketing. One of the major things that he studies is how pricing influences spending decisions by getting into people's very thoughts, often without their noticing them. We all tend to think as consumers that we are very knowledgeable about price. But the reality is that uh, our, our state of knowledge is very poor. Okay, so I'll just give you an example. You're walking into a store, you look at a product or a service, um, you look at the price label, 30 seconds later, more than half the people have forgotten what that price was. Welcome to The Index, a podcast about economics, psychology, and the hidden business of everything from Rice University's Jones Graduate School of Business. I'm your host, Saul Elbine, and today we're going to talk about price, what's in a number, and how that number works subtly to change the way that you think. With me in the studio is Tim Taliaferro. I'm delighted to be with you, Saul. Who is wearing, I might add, a rather stylish shirt that he purchased from a pay-what-you-want online clothing store a concept which he discussed, among other things, with Professor Dolakia during Texas Monthly's South by Southwest event, where both beer and knowledge were given out free, which, as we'll see, is a suspiciously low value. We consider them lost leaders. Um, Tim, this may be my bias towards anything numerical, but as a consumer, I tend to treat prices as sort of like scientific reports. I tend to implicitly assume that they're telling me something, and I tend to be pretty sure that I know what that is. What am I missing? You're missing a lot, actually. Professor Delacchia says it's both a science and an art, and that it's a way for marketers to influence consumers. And if consumers know that, they can fight back. But that's tough to do because often we don't know much. So it's this thing in the background that kind of works on you. Studies have been done where people put a, uh, put a product into the shopping, uh, shopping cart, and someone comes up to them and asks, do you know what the price is? Two-thirds of people cannot even guess within 10% of the wow. actual price, you know? And uh, only about, I think, I, I want to say about 15 to 20% actually remember the precise price. Now, with this state of affairs, the, the whole idea is that uh, price tends to be kind of like a very powerful tool that can work either in the consumer's favor or it can kind of uh, really make the consumer uncomfortable, you know, um, because they feel like they, are, they don't know enough. They kind of have to think about how to use price in their decision and so on. Uh, let's do this thought experiment, okay? Let me tell you, there's a car parked outside. That car cost $85,000, okay? Just in your mind's eye, just think about, um, about that car. I mean, what comes to your mind? That's my car. <laughs> no, 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 not your car. I, I mean the features. I literally oh, mean what brand is it? Uh, what is it? It is a sports car. What, the, what its power is, how, what horsepower it has, those types of things. Okay? Switch gears now. Okay? Tell you the car starting outside is actually $3,500. Are you going to imagine the same car? Okay. Now let me tell you. That actually is Todd's car. 
That is stop time. <laughs> That's my car. That's- Did some guy in the audience just yell, That's Tim's car? I think he called me Todd. That seems a little unkind. I suspect it was an accident. And, you know, I had been giving him some things for free, if you recall. So maybe he just assumed it might not be valuable. So here's another example. You have a beloved dog. I actually have a pair of Bengal kittens who seem to love the sound of breaking glass. Or that kittens get sick, God forbid. You're looking for a vet and you find one that's says on the front, lowest prices in the city. Gut check now. Do you take your precious kitty to that vet? I would say that cheap does not seem like the number one criteria for any doctor, human or otherwise. That is the whole point, because we have this really uh, wrong notion that low prices are good and high prices are bad. But in reality, in many, many cases, exactly the opposite is the case, you know? People are turned away when the prices are too low. That doesn't mean that you can just uh, keep charging higher prices and so on, but the point is that the price has to match the quality of the product or service that you are offering the consumer. You know, just going for a low price or going for a very high price defeats the purpose. Again, on both sides of the story, the, 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 the whole idea of a good price is a price which matches what the product or the service is worth to what the consumer is looking for. So I was raised in a household where my mom believed in the lowest price is always the best. And my dad believed in if you spend too little on a tool, you're just going to have to buy it again when it breaks. Right. So it sounds like your family had a couple of different relationships with price signaling. Or maybe it's better to say price signaled something different to each of them. But I'll bet even your mom didn't only buy things that were cheap. Because what he's saying is that even thrifty people tend to see a certain price as a proxy for value. It is certainly true that no one in my family has ever skimped on vet care. Right. And, you know, we're going to see how love and emotion can get tied into all of this. But for now, vets are just one example of how low prices can turn customers off and make them suspicious. Low prices turn customers off. Can you give me another example of that? Well, Professor Delacchia can. He recently had a paper in Psychology Today where he wrote about a best-selling author who was asked to give a keynote speech. And maybe this person didn't need the money. So he quoted $3,000, which by comparison was very low for other speakers. And that did not communicate to them, oh, what a great deal. It communicated exactly the opposite. Something here isn't right. We're not getting a good value. So you're saying, and he's saying, that sometimes products will do better when they cost more. I sure am. So a few years ago, Olay, the skincare company, has a new product, and they're trying to figure out how to price it. There are three options, $12.99, $15.99, and $18.99. Which of those three do you think sold the best? Well, usually I'd say the cheapest one, but here I suspect you were trying to trick me. Indeed, I was. That price, $12.99, the lowest price, turned people off. Uh, it did okay at the lowest, really bad in the middle at $15.99, but it did it best at the highest at $18.99. This is just too cheap. I don't want to buy something which is only $12.99. And in reality, what ended up happening is the, the highest price was the most attractive price by far. 
because that's where all the target customers of this product found this product to be like a good value, something that they would actually feel comfortable buying and that they thought is going to make a difference to their um, to their uh, skin or whatever the product was about. Okay, so again, the whole message here is price and uh, value have to kind of like coincide with each other. You cannot just charge a low price and say this is uh, this is great. You know. So the same product, priced three different ways, did the best at the highest price. Sure. Okay, but if I know that prices are variable, isn't that just going to change the way that I'm going to shop? No, because you already know that prices are variable. It would be impossible to find a product whose price hasn't changed, um, let's say, in the last uh, year or so, uh, especially on the consumer side. And that's because uh, marketers are always like, doing things like uh, running price promotions, offering okay. discounts, offering uh, buy one, get one free offers, all kinds of uh, um, different promotional uh, methods to basically get more customers to buy the product. Okay, so um, you have to be uh, careful about, uh, about the st stability of prices as well, because uh, prices change a lot, and that has to do also with how the value is communicated to the consumer by changing prices. So I have right here a quote from his Psychology Today article, which is sort of the punchline to all of this. I have it right here. The main lesson for consumers is this. When a product's quality is hard to assess, that's when savvy marketers tend to set prices at a high level to signal that they are selling high-quality items. This is when you should take the time to do research and try to understand what contributes to quality so that you can buy the item with the best value instead of just the most expensive one. Or, in what economists call the Rifka-Elbein corollary, when you're at the grocery store, just buy generic. Rivka-Elbein is your mom, I take it. She is. And actually, living with her as a kid really taught me how to interact with grocery stores. As I think we'll discuss later, generic grocery goods are often made in the same facilities and out of the same ingredients. They just lack the branding. And so now, a weird thing happens to me when I'm at a grocery store and I see, say, the HEB brand or the Kroger brand. I see the simplicity of the packaging, and what it says to me is, unpretentious, low price, quality. And then I notice that the price is a little bit less than the brand name, and I get this little thrill of victory. Aha, uh -huh. so your mom intuitively understood that as much as price is a signal of value, it is actually different from value. So Utpal gets into the difference between those two. How do marketers leverage that difference? So what's yeah. the difference between price and value? Or what's the relationship maybe between those two? Sure. So Price is simply, you can think of price as a dollar and cent kind of like uh, consideration like how much something costs. It's literally how much money the consumer is going to spend or the company is going to earn. But value is a much, it's a far more important and nebulous concept. Okay, because uh, value can actually mean many different things. And let's say for any individual product, um, value tends to be a highly personal concept. Okay, so if you look at any of the articles in this room, um, I'm sure every person has a different valuation for each of those products and services. Some might, some might feel that their wardrobe is full, they don't need that. The value for that particular garment is absolutely zero. They don't want to pay anything. On the other hand, they, they might think that this, this garment is amazing and they might be willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars. Who knows, right? So it's not like the price. It's Saul's price, or Tim's price, or HEB's price. And it's like, until the invisible price that I carry in my head and the one that the store has on the product match, we don't actually have a deal. And we're both trying to make a deal. 
Right. And their job is to convince you that price is at or slightly below value. That's marketing. So how do you price things when everyone has a different idea in their head of what things should cost? I mean, you don't want to set it too low, as we've seen. But also, if my price is lower than yours, then they're not getting all the money that they can from you when they set it at mine. Well, increasingly, you're seeing companies price things by consumer. So you may actually see a different price than I see, and something may cost different based on how much I value something versus what you're willing to pay for the same thing. And I'm just going to note that sounds like a really technical idea, and we're going to get into dynamic pricing here in a second. But there's a really old technology for targeting different customers with different price points, and it's called the sale. The challenge for a marketer is to figure out, again, how to match all these differences in value to the price that they are going to ask for. And that's, that's one reason why, actually, prices are varied over time, right? Because I mean, think of it like this. I mean, if you imagine the, a leather jacket in the store, and this jacket uh, is priced at, let's say, $500, all right? Some people might walk by and say, uh, this $500 is too expensive. And let's say $500 a store is making a lot of profit, okay? So the people who really have a high value for the jacket are going to buy the jacket at $500. But the store is going to miss a lot of sales to people who are willing to pay less, but the store could still make a profit. So then what is the solution to this problem? You charge $500 most of the time, you run a sale and offer that jacket for let's say 400 um, for a few weeks. So that way what you have done is you have grabbed those more price sensitive people and sold the jacket to them at the lower price, increasing the sales and also increasing the total profit. So that is basically the idea behind a price promotion, which is you want to capture the differences in valuation from, um, that, that consumers have about the product. So, Saul, you talked about your thrill of victory when you buy the HEB generic can of tomatoes. And that thrill of victory, there are some retailers who are making money by trying to give that sense of greater control and price transparency, including one of my favorite retailers, which actually flips the script on pricing by doing something kind of crazy. They let you choose what you pay. You're saying they let you choose your own price? Yes, they let you choose from some prices. So Everlane is the company, and when they do sales... Mark three different prices that you can pay for that same item. A low price, a medium price, and a slightly higher price. So I shop at Everlane, which is an online retailer, and they sometimes when they go to sale, it's called choose what you pay, and they give you discount rates. What is that, and what are they doing? Why is that a more successful or less successful strategy? Yeah, so um, in pricing, we call this as actually pay what you want pricing. And if uh, if you look at pay what you want, it's exactly what it says, which is the product is in front of you, you pretty much pay what you want. Now, it sounds like a very appealing idea to the consumer. Um, from the marketer's perspective, it is a very hard thing to pull off, okay? Because, I mean, there are lots of studies that people have done about this topic. Um, and by and large, people tend to underpay, which is not surprising, but um, they underpay by so much that it's hard to actually uh, have a sustainable business model around uh, pay what you want. Now, companies like Everlane still run these promotions, and there's, again, a reason for this. So the reason is not to make money, but it, but it might be a different reason. It might be to get rid of some um, inventory that they don't want, but more importantly, just to generate excitement. 
So it is a good example of what we call as a loss leader. Okay, so the idea is that I, um, we want to draw people to our, our company and or our brand and get them to buy our products. We don't mind if we actually lose money on some products just to introduce them to our brand. It's also a way of rewarding loyal customers. So you might say, okay, um, you, you might buy a lot on Everlane. Uh, Tim, and uh, it, it might be that once in a while they offer you this pay what you want, you get a really good deal, you feel more connected to the brand, and you feel like you want to buy more Everlane products in the future. So it seems like any person who sees that will just choose the cheapest option, right? That's what I thought. But surprisingly, no. It turns out most people don't want to take advantage. And if they feel like the brand is being transparent in their prices, they'll pay more for what they see as value. The way Everlane works is with that three price model is the first price only covers their variable costs, okay. okay, the lowest price. The middle price covers both the variable costs plus kind of the, what we call as the allocated fixed cost. So with the middle price, the, com- the company is actually breaking even on selling that product. At the high price, they're actually making some money, okay? And what is really interesting about this Everlane uh, model is they tell you this. So they tell you what those three prices are and te- they tell you why they have so- set those pre- three prices. So Everlane is actually, the more interesting thing about Everlane is this idea of price transparency. Okay, so now this is a really interesting concept which we are just starting to see and Everlane is one of the companies which are, which is kind of like in the forefront of this. So the idea is, and you can go on their website and take a look at this. When they list a price, they will also list exactly how much it costs them to make that product. And then they will say, okay, these are all our costs. We are marking it up by 100%, and this is our final price. Even more important, they are actually um, displaying the labor costs. Because in the garment industry, Everlane is a fashion retailer. In the garment industry, nowadays, more and more of us are concerned about uh, labor welfare. We do not want to buy garments which are made by slave labor or child labor, for example. You know? And again, I mean, going back to the informativeness of price, if you see a T-shirt for like $10, uh, a new T-shirt, you, most of us nowadays more and more think about how is it possible to sell a T-shirt which was made in Bangladesh or China for $10, and how much did the laborer or laborers who actually made that T-shirt get paid? Certainly not much. Slave wages, right? Mm -hmm. And so Everlane is capitalizing on this idea that we are paying far more for labor. Actually, they pay 10 times to 15 times more for labor than than their peer competitors. And they are actually proud about this. You are paying a higher price because the the people who made this T-shirt are getting fair, fair wages. You know, so it's a pretty compelling value proposition for a large number of, uh, of consumers. So that turns the notion of low price kind of on its head. What it says is you could shop at a big box store and you could pay $3 for a T-shirt, but the price is you're then going to feel a vague sense of guilt whenever you wear it. Or you could buy from us for a little more money and feel good. That would be, say, American Giants value proposition. Or Whole Foods. Or for that matter, every luxury retailer ever that is trying to position itself as super high quality. So it sounds like part of what allows them to charge that premium sometimes is the positive associations that people make by avoiding serious scandals associated with labor conditions in their brand. Yes, that's a good example. Or it's they're just forging a really deep relationship with that brand and they come to associate with it on a level deeper than just 
I like this stuff. It's more signaling that I am this type of person because I buy this particular brand's product. Okay, so this is all much squishier than I thought. Pricing is starting to seem like a pretty effective subliminal way of other people managing my emotions. So how do I get around that? What do I do when the value isn't so clear, like in Utpal's Psychology Today example? Like before I go to a music show, as in the Peter Rodriguez interview, or if I'm comparing different sorts of health insurance. You know, in each of those cases, they aren't all that different. So when the value is completely unknowable, you still somehow, again, I'm talking as a consumer, you still have to somehow figure out its value. Because, right, I mean, if you want to make a decision of whether you want to give a tip or not, you still have to somehow decide whether that performance was valuable enough for you. And so what you are going to do is you're going to use whatever cues you have at your disposal, you know, in that particular movement to make that decision. Um, I don't know enough about street performers, but I know a lot about insurance companies. So insurance com- <laughs> but insurance companies have the same problem, right? Because most of us uh, might have insurance for years and years, and we never use insurance. So then how do we know whether this insurance is good or bad, right? And again, this is where the role of brand becomes much more important, right? Because um, if they build up a brand, you are going to rely on all the things you know about that insurance company through that brand to infer that if you have a problem, this insurance company is going to take care of you. That's where also word of mouth plays a really significant role because you might not have had that experience, but someone else did, and that that information is very valuable. Going back to street performers, uh, and also for tipping in general, if you look at restaurants and how people decide how much they want to tip, which kind of falls in a similar class of issues, people are giving money um, not to reward necessarily the street performer or the service in the restaurant, although there is some of that. Their main motivation in kind of like giving uh, uh, money is to actually feel good about themselves. Hmm. Okay, so uh, to the extent that a street performer or a, serv- uh, or a wait staff can actually uh, induce um, this feeling that uh, what we call as a warm glow, you know, you feel really like, oh, I gave like a really big tip, I really feel good about myself, I'm a good person. You know, to the extent that you can kind of like create this uh, motivation to have the warm glow, maybe a sign which says, you'll feel great if you give me a $5 tip, you know, that is going to be very effective. Yeah, the so. warm glow effect. That's nice. The warm glow effect is interesting. So people give money to buy good feelings, essentially. Yes. And he argues that that's true of successful political fundraisers as well. So the psychology, again, behind this, uh, uh, we can probably use uh, Barack Obama as an example of this, is a lot of people, especially when they feel alienated, want to, by giving money, uh, they're not giving money necessarily uh, to a particular candidate. They are giving money to be part of something uh, that they agree with, so a set of uh, values or principles or policies that they agree with. Okay, so it's not so much a matter of like uh, economic transaction. It's much more a, a, a matter of this, all this emotional, what to call it, the packaging around the transaction, which is far more important, you know? So what he's saying is in a crowded primary field where you're competing for political cash and press, you're going to want to stand out. The technical term is product differentiation. So the way to look at this issue, and I don't know enough about uh, Beto's platform versus some other candidate's platform, but the way to look at this issue from a marketing perspective is to ask how differentiated is he compared to um, all the like eight or nine or whatever number of candidates that are out there. If he's exactly like them, 
he doesn't look like them. Yes, this is true. But what are what are his positions on these different issues? You know, and how far apart is he, and how uh, how distinct is he? Um, so that's one part of it. But then the other part of it is also how how likable is he compared to those other eight or nine candidates? How much do people simply like him more? Okay, so that's the other kind of like part of the emotional package that we are kind of like talking about. So there's a lot of talk about the future of brands and that millennials are moving away from them. Right. But that gets to something we brought up earlier. You know how you said your mom likes to buy generic? Sure. She says there's no sense in paying for brand name. Okay. But store brand is a brand name. H-E-B, Kroger, Randall's, whatever. It's just that for certain customers, it took a different value proposition to get their money. It's going to be H-E-B brand and not a leave. So millennials are like that. They're not replacing the market. They're expanding the market. Right. So first of all, um, I don't think that millennials are moving away from brands at all. You know, so the, uh, let me show, tell you something interesting. So there's something called the hipster effect. I don't know if you have heard about the hipster effect. So the hipster effect is hipsters tend to be, uh, tend to try to be really distinct from uh, everyone else. Part of being a hipster is to be this really this unique person who uh, has completely disavowed mainstream culture. But by becoming a hipster, they become like everyone else. You know, they become, so all hipsters are very similar to each other. And I, I don't mean hipsters in a negative way. I just mean hipsters as a, as a category of people. All right. Now, the same thing applies to brands. Millennials think that there is uh, kind of like they are moving away from brands and they are really into unbranded goods. But I'll give you one example of a, com- a new company which just started a couple of months ago. It's called Italic. Okay, so the idea behind Italic is, um, you know, there are all these like luxury brands, Prada and Burberry and uh, Louis Vuitton and all this. So they said, okay, we are going to go to the same manufacturing facilities and we are going to make these purses and wallets and uh, scarves and whatever. And we are going to sell it for a much lower price than these Pradas and Burberries. Okay? But then um, they also gave themselves a brand name. They call themselves Italic. Okay, so now you're not buying a Burberry, but you're buying an Italic. And then you're feeling that you are very wise that you have bought a, a luxury product for a much cheaper price. So the millennial is still connected with a brand. You know, it's impossible not to be connected with a brand because brands are so valuable. You see, because um, what a brand does is it actually uh, captures a bunch of information just in a particular name and a concept that would be very, very hard to process otherwise. Okay, so, so to answer your question, I mean, um, millennials are just uh, going after different brands and are connecting with different brands maybe, but not, not giving up brands. Yeah, this reminds me of a book I read that argued that the 1960s counterculture was actually... And, and kind of despite the intentions of many of the people who are part of it, a huge force in the expansion of brands. Because suddenly now there's all of these people who don't like or trust, quote unquote, established society or established brands. And a bunch of savvy marketers realize those people are still a market. And so you get, say, the VW bug. Yeah, exactly. There's this endless possibility to fill into the market where there's gaps. So prices are not fixed. Sales are how you arbitrage between people at different price points. We should always be alert to the wedge between price and value. Anything else? Just that the smartest brand these days may be the brand that can say brand less. And if you're not running off to a pressing meeting, listen to our next episode in which Rice business professor Doug Schuler asks a simple question. 
Why has all the spending on food banks not moved the needle on the number of people going hungry? If you look at the percentage, after a decade of really very stellar work by many, many organizations, the needle doesn't change. And this is really strange. This is why we study this area. Till next time. Thank you, Saul. The Index is a production of Rice Business in collaboration with Texas Monthly Studio. I'm Melissa Reese, executive producer. Our show is engineered and produced by Brian Standifer, who also wrote our theme music. Our moderators are Tim Taliaferro and Carlos Sanchez. The Index is written and hosted by Saul Elbine. For more business insights, visit business.rice.edu backslash wisdom.